I think it's Shabbat, right? Barley. But it ended in TH, and they just said TH. No, it's a Shin Sin. Right, it says Shibolat, and he said Shibolat. Aha! You're from the tribe of Binyamin. Kill him! Fine. So yesterday, we had a long detour in the middle of class. Um, so we didn't get as far in the actual, yeah. We spoke about head coverings. Okay. Okay. Okay, so what we're doing is just trying to understand what is going on in the Sitra Achra. So if someone can please translate those words, Sitra Achra. The other side. When you say it's the other side as opposed to what? No. As, as the famous expression goes, it's either my way. I mean, like, get out of here, right? So there's the side of holiness, and it's not the side of holiness? Then it's the other side, the other stuff, right? Okay. And what is the defining characteristic of the side of holiness? What makes the side of holiness the side of holiness? That it has holiness in it. Where did that holiness come from? Hashem, because Hashem is holy. It's the holiness of Hashem that dwells within the holy side. What is it that allows the things in the side of holiness to receive the holiness of Hashem? Bittel. Okay. So, to make a physical analogy, right? If the sun is God, which it's not, by the way, don't worship the sun, but if the sun is God, right? Then the brightness of the sun would be holiness. Okay? You wouldn't say the sun is God, the sun is part of God. No, God doesn't have parts. Peace. God doesn't have pieces. It's from God. Maybe. If, by analogy, the sun is God, the brightness of the sun would correspond to <coughs> holiness of God. Now, the brightness of the sun is not contained within the sun, right? The brightness of the sun radiates beyond the sun, right? Provided what? What, what is necessary in order for the light of the sun to radiate to a place? It has to be a medium receiving it. The opposite. It doesn't have to be medium receiving it. The opposite. There can't be... No, but what needs to be about what needs to be true about the place? If there's that's dark, that just can receive it. What and makes something able to receive sunlight? That gets open to it. That's right. It's open to it. It's transparent, right? If something is not transparent, then the the brightness of the sun will not reach that place, right? So if I have a brick wall, then right, it won't reach it. If I have an open window, it will reach it, right? Okay, so, so, right, so the sun is bright, the room is also bright, the brightness in the room is the barely just the brightness of the sun, but what it allows the brightness to be there is because the room is open to it, right, it's, it's, it's not opaque, it's not even translucent, it's just totally transparent, good? Mm -hmm. So we'd say the same thing, Hashem is holy. The holiness of Hashem extends beyond himself 
and permeates other things, provided that those other things are bottled to him. They are nullified to him. They are surrendered to him, whatever the case might be. Right? So this is very important. Okay? And I want this, I'm, I'm, I'm fetching because I want you to understand. Is bittle an end in and of itself? Is bittle? Is bittle inherently a good thing? Like, is, is it good to just be bottle because bittle no. is good? No. Why is bittle good in the context of Hasidus? Because you get to receive Hashem more. That's right. Bittle is, bittle is what makes some, a, a, the holiness of Hashem dwell within something, right? So bittle is not, right? Bittle is not a virtue in its own right. Holiness is the virtue in its own right. Right? That's not what it's called, right? It's not the side of bittle, it's the side of holiness. The condition for holiness is either that you're God, in which case you're intrinsically holy, or if you're not Hashem and you need to receive holiness, in order to receive holiness, the condition for that is to be bottled to Hashem, to be open to Hashem, to be transparent to Hashem, or to use other words, to surrender to Hashem, to be modest in front of Hashem, etc., 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 etc. Yes? Okay. Therefore, something which is not bottled to Hashem, the holiness of Hashem does not dwell within that thing, right? Is that thing? Does it dwell or doesn't dwell as much? It doesn't dwell at all. Really? Really. Are there levels of bittle? One question at a time. I'll answer your question in a moment. Yes. So. Okay, well, that's the topic we're going to read in this paragraph that we stopped in the middle of. Yes, there are levels of bittle. Do you know what the study of biology is? Biology. Take biology in high school or college. What's biology? Come on. You study know of the body and anatomy and study of living things. Study of living organisms, right? Kind of yeah, physically living things, right? You don't study angels in biology, right? Yeah. right? Bio meaning like living organisms, right? And uh, that kind of stuff. And okay, um, <laughs> geology. What's geology? Genetic stuff. No, geology. Study, study the earth, right? Geo is the earth, and so anything, right? Okay. Um, what's theology? Religion? Study of God. God's name is apparently is Theo, by the way. In case you were wondering. Yes. Well, in Greek, Theo means God. Okay, you see how that's how theologies work, right? Okay. So if Hasidus were taught in university, what would it be called? Theology. No. Astrology. Astrology. Like as an a- What? It's really called Bittalology, the study of Bittal. Because there are different kinds of bittel that allow for different types of indwelling of holiness. And that's really what Hasidus is primarily interested in, is that, well, that no, subject. I want to take mythology. Well, that's what we're doing. I don't know what you're doing. Right? Maybe you Hasidus doesn't actually, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. Hasidus doesn't very do a lot of talking about God per se. It talks about the way in which different things can or are or not and can and cannot be bottled to Hashem and how there's different kinds of Hashem's holiness dwelling within different things. That's really what it is. That relationship between bittel and the indwelling of holiness and that there's different kinds of bittel. So for instance, as we spoke yesterday, your soul has an intrinsic bittel all the time, right? 10 Jews get together, there's a different kind of bittel. You're doing a physical mitzvah, it's a different kind of bittel. You have a love of Hashem, it's a different kind of bittel. Angels have a different kind of bittel, right? There's the bittel of a tzaddik, which is superior in certain respects to the bittel of someone who's not a tzaddik. But there's non-tzaddik's bittel superior in certain respects to the tzaddik's bittel. Right? It's not even necessarily a hierarchy of bittles, right? So it's, it's quite complex. 
You can spend your whole life learning it. I recommend that, by the way. Yes? But if I'm not a bit person... You are, in part. Just a very small part. But then you said, I thought we said that if it's either he dwells in it or he doesn't. So Hashem dwells in part of you, the bit part of you. Which part of you is bottle? Your hand? Mm, not usually. When is your hand bottle to Hashem? With your hand. With my hand? That's right. But there's a part of you that's bottle all the time. Which part of you is bottle all the time? We spoke about this yesterday. Even in your neshama, there's a certain part that the, 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 right, the altar calls it the chachma of the neshama, the pintalia. That part of you is bucked all the time. Yeah. So that part of you is totally but it's not even awakened, That's true. Yeah, sleeping bitle. You know, but you know, you know what happen, You know what happens when someone's sleeping? Snoring. They can wake up. That's what Japan learned in World War II. You know that, right? The Japanese they bombed Pearl Harbor. And the, and the admiral in charge of the mission um, telegrammed back to Tokyo that we've woken the sleeping giant. Like, that was a bad idea, I think. <laughs> we probably shouldn't have done that. Because, granted, they were sleeping, but you can wake up. <laughs> and just like the United States, when it woke up in World War II, decided we're going to squash every, all of our enemies all over the world and establish a new world order. When the Nishama decides to wake up, yeah, interesting stuff happens. Okay. People like, decide to become Bali Chuva, they give up their life for God, right? No, stuff like that. Crazy stuff happens. Okay, good? Yeah. But we're going to now direct our attention to the Sitra Achra. The Sitra Achra, first off, is not receiving holiness, right? But as we discussed in yesterday's class, you can't say the Sitra Achra is not receiving anything because unlike any analogy that we have between things that exist in the world, everything that exists in the world, its existence is not entirely dependent on something else, right? Um, whereas when you talk about Hashem, Hashem is the only source of anything. So if something exists, it gets its existence from Hashem. If something is clever, it gets its cleverness from Hashem. If something is charismatic, it gets its charisma from Hashem. There's an interesting bracha that we make. What bracha would you make if you saw, hmm, I'll give you a good example. The Tsar, you've ever heard of the Tsar? No. Tsar of Russia? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Tsar. The Tsar was known as a great lover of Jews, right? No. No. Okay. The Tsar, the Tsar, the, the Tsar, yeah. I do not think that there was a single Tsar who was not a, a raging anti Semite, to my knowledge. What bracha do you make when you see the Tsar? The same way you make for a king? Yeah, yeah he's a king. What's the bracha? Blessed are you, Hashem, who made kings. No. Is it right now? No. You see, anti-Semite. Destroyer of Jewish communities. And what do you say? Who gave his glory to, to, to people of flesh and blood. In other words, the sovereignty, the authority, the majesty. What? The, all the glory, all the majesty, all the authority associated with a king. A king like the Tsar, right? Is really whose authority and whose majesty and whose glory? Hashem's. You know, it's everything, every quality that exists in any created thing, it doesn't get it from itself, it gets it from Hashem. Right? As the Rambam says, that everything exists by the truth of his existence. So, even something which is sitra it's not buckle, it isn't transparent, doesn't surrender to Hashem in any way, shape, or form, nonetheless, it has to be receiving from Hashem. So what is it receiving? And that's what we ended yesterday's class. It's receiving 
from was behind Hashem's back. Right? It's called the backside. The, the of Hashem. Backside? The backside. Okay. Um, it's called in Hebrew Acharaim, the backside. So Hashem has a front and Hashem has a back. What is the front and what is the back? Or in Hebrew this is called the, the pinimius, which also means the inner side, the face or the inner side, versus the Acharaim, the back side. So the, the inner side or, the, or, the, or the, the front side of something is the part of it that is truly itself, its authentic part. What? Right. And the back side is always this part about it which is over the, over the shoulder, it's superficial, it's missing everything. So let me explain. Right? If someone were to tell you, please say I tell you, hey, you know what this is? This is a solid black object. Are they saying something that's true? Correct. Yes. And you say, well, can you tell me anything else about it? It's like, well, it's kind of flexible. Can you tell me anything else about it? Um, it's got different textures. At some point, you get frustrated. Like, do, do you realize it's a hat? Like, it's supposed to go on someone's head? Like, there's, there's, like, what is it? It's a hat, right? In fact, if I have something like this, but it's a slightly different texture and slightly different color, and made of slightly different materials, right? We would still think on some fundamental level it's the same kind of thing, right? It's, they're both hats, right? So the panemius of something, here's something, is the thing about itself which is really authentic to its own identity. So what does it mean that Hashem has, a, has an inner aspect or, or a face? That's like we spoke about yesterday. What is it about Hashem that makes Hashem truly himself? That, 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 that's fundamentally indescribable, right? Because it, what makes Hashem who he is is nothing like anything else. So it's undescribable. That's what we mean when we say holy. Okay. But there's a bunch of other stuff that's true about Hashem, right? And so if you just get this other stuff, you're getting the haram, you're getting the backside, you're getting the superficiality, right? You can see this, by the way, in a person, okay? Um, how do you get to know somebody? Let's say you, let's say you made a goal. You want to get to know somebody. That will not necessarily work. What? Well, you added a very important word, quality. I want, I want to use quality. Okay, so what does that word quality mean? Not just like no interruption. Not necessarily good enough. Solid. You really develop something. Well, I mean, that's what I'm asking you, right? <laughs> that's like saying, how do you make a cake? Well, first thing you do is you make a cake. <laughs> like, well, thank you. That was helpful. Solid. Someone showed me once. Someone showed me once like a joke recipe book, which every recipe was like lasagna. Step one: lasagna. Get lasagna. <laughs> right. Okay. You need to communicate. That won't be good enough. And time to speak to them. Might not necessarily be good enough. What? Let them speak about them. Okay. Them. Now you're getting some. You need to. You need to interact with them. Okay, and I think you all get it, but I'm going to put it in much more formal words. You need to interact in such a way that what's coming out of them is, what, is their inner part and not the superficial part of themselves. You could spend hours with a person, but if everything they're doing, everything they're saying, right, superficial. is superficial, then you'll never get to know them, right? 
but you can spend a very short amount of time with them, right? And if what's coming out is something that's authentic in them, you can get to know them very well, assuming that you're attentive, right? Does this make sense? Okay, so let's use dating as an example. How long do you have to date somebody before you can decide to marry them? Get enough time to get to know them, right? Now, I mean, this is now. So, for instance, if you spend a lot of time dating, doing things that are superficial, then then drags everything out, right? Yeah. Obviously, there's something people can do to like they can they can they can they can they can actively hide themselves. That's what I'm getting into in this analogy. On the other hand, right? If two people sit down and have you know, the two or three hour conversation, you know, four or five or six times. And all they're doing is trying to really be authentic, right? And you're going to know the person. You're going to get a pretty decent sense of the person that's not going to radically change if you have another six or seven times you meet, right? I mean, obviously people are complex and no amount of, right? Because people, like, on some level, we never even truly know ourselves because you go deeper and deeper, but I'm not getting into that, right? So there's a sense, therefore, that you can sometimes discover that you didn't really know somebody because you realize that everything that you saw was really superficial. superficial. You might not have realized it was superficial, right? In fact, what's really scary is that can happen to yourself. You know, it for sure can happen when you get married, by the way, because no amount, like some things are, some things are situational dependent. If you are, if you are interacting with somebody in some kind of formalized setting, regardless of the nature of that formalized setting, then there's going to be some element that it's superficial. And so like, the only way to know somebody is not superficial is to already, like, the only way to know what your spouse is actually going to be like is to be married to them. But you can get some kind of sense of things before. But the, the analogy that I wanted to use is, what about ourselves? Can you ever discover that you realize that you thought you knew yourself? Yeah. Because things felt like they were authentic, and then all of a sudden you discover, like, I mean, it's authentic relative to something else, but compared to some deeper level of myself, that whole thing was kind of superficial. It's like when you take those personality traits and you're like, what? Okay. So, so the same thing is true with Hashem, right? Is that Hashem's pundim, his face, his inner aspect, is he's trying to convey authentically what it is to be godly, what it is to be holy. If that's not what you're getting, then you're not getting God. But you're getting something of God, right? So that's the idea of his backside. So what is Klippa getting? Klippa is just another word for the Sitrachah. What is the Sitrachah receiving? It's receiving from the backside. Okay? Good? Mm -hmm. All right. That's where we were. Now, um, so um, there's a footnote in my book, 11. And then followed by the word descending. Do you guys have that in your version of the text? They should all work off of the same one. Let's tell the next year we should just have a bunch of the same tradition. It's right in the middle of the paragraph that starts, however. Yeah, we have it. Okay. So, and this backside is descending degree by degree through myriads of degrees with the lowering of the world by the way of cause and effect and innumerable contractions until the light and life are so diminished through repeated diminutions that they be compressed and enclosed in a state of exile, as it were, within that separate thing, giving it vitality and existence ex nihilo. So it does not revert to nothingness and non-existence as it was before it was created. I have a question. Yes. Why does it have to say so many ways of contracting? 
because they're different, and each thing has a, has, plays a different role. So if we count them, okay, what are, what, if you want to go, which, which marker is the, good, the green marker? Okay. Okay. All right. So we have, we want to go from Hashem, I mean we don't, but that's what happens, to Hashem to something which is not holy. No, not holy. Not holy, right? Things that are not holy are known in Aramaic as Sikra or other known as other side. So not holy means. Okay. So what do you have to do to go from Hashem to Sitra? Well, number one, you need to have the back side, right? Because if you're still working with the front side of Hashem, are you ever gonna get Sitra? No. No, because the front side is his holiness, we're right? We're trying in a conceptual sense. How does it happen? Not we ourselves in our no, lives. I'm saying in a conceptual sense, right? Yeah, which I don't understand. What happens between Hashem and Sitrachra? How does that come about? So number one, the first thing is, what's Hashem giving to the Sitrachra? His front or his back? His back. Back. Now, if he just gives his back, that's not going to be good enough. Why? We're going to explain it. First, let's, we're going to make an enumeration. Then, so if you go back in the text, is the back side, and then it says... Uh, where we started, but from behind his back, as it were. You see, you see the paragraph? Yeah. I really need to work on the same page as you, so I can tell you exactly where we are at each step. Okay. Well, we are, and in the, in the, in the thing is the same. Okay, descending degree by degree through myriads of degrees, yeah, with the lowering of the worlds by way of cause and effect. Okay? So then there is this other thing that he mentions, which is... This concept of lowering. What is it called? Lowering. What are they doing in English? Of yeah, through myriads degrees. Yeah. Lowering. Yeah, this is the idea of lowering, right? It goes from one level to another level, from one degree to another degree. Then he mentions a third thing. Um, cause and effect. That's all describing the. It's by way of cause and effect. And then he says, an innumerable, he mentions the third thing, contractions. If you misspelled the word on a test, they gave you back your test, and he said, you sit down with the dictionary and correct all your spelling mistakes. Me too. And um, I still didn't learn how to spell. <laughs> okay. Um, so backside, there's a lowering, there's some contractions, and then he mentions... Until the um, repeated... It, it can be, then it can be compressed and enclosed. Okay in a state of exile. So the last thing is going to be Okay. In order to get something which isn't holy, give me an example of something that is not holy. Watching movies. Nah, something something bad. 
I don't like watching movies. Uh, it's too obvious. Yeah, right. No, something more brushing interesting. Brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth. Where'd you <laughs> no. get that example? No, I don't want to know. Okay, so pick something else. So it's something just so putting on your shoes. Putting on your shoes, okay. So how do we go from Hashem to the existence of a human being putting on shoes? Number one, only Hashem's backside is exposed. Number two, from the backside, whatever that back, whatever that backside stuff is, has to go through a process of lowering, whatever that means. And then, not just lowering, but also Contract. contractions. And then the result of that has to then be clothed in a state of exile. And then the result of that is there's somebody putting on shoes. If so, what happens if it's no longer clothed in a state of exile? There weren't the contractions. If it wasn't no lowering. And Hashem isn't showing you his backside? Okay. So, right now, let's understand. Now, is that, by the way, happening in the side? Are any of these things happening in the side of holiness? No. No. But can you make it happen in the side of holiness? I don't know if you'd want to. What about like, the whole idea, like, whatever, because we were just in the shoes, of like putting one shoe on before the next and tying it, isn't that connected to something holy? It is, but we're going to ignore that right now. That's chapter 7, how things, things which aren't holy can become holy. We're not going to worry about that. We're just, we just want to talk about things that are not holy. Okay. okay. So, we explain this idea of the backside. Everyone's comfortable with what that means? Yeah. If you're not, say so now because I'm moving on. Okay. Let me go check mark who did that. Okay, what's this idea of lowering? And that's putting yourself in a not so high level connection. Like you're making a bend in your level. So. So, the idea of lowering, first off, presupposes there's a higher and there's a lower, right? Right. right? So, that's the thing we always have to jump. But whenever you see anything in Hasidus, or for that matter, anywhere, anything where you have some kind of a up and a down, a higher and a lower, you need to ask yourself, well, what does that actually mean? Like, what counts as up and what counts as down? Right? I mean, physically, we all know that down is the center of the earth and up is towards the sky, right? Okay. Um, but... But like, you know, we say we want to draw down godliness. And what does that mean? God is in the sky. We want to bring him towards the center of the earth. But, but he's not in the sky. Spread it down to here. What do you mean down to here? What sense is it down? Why not say up? Why not say left? Like, like what? If you fly in the plane, you're closer to Hashem. You should be more religious in the plane because you're closer to God? That's stupid, right? The reverse might be true. The, the, the Torah does say the Torah is not in heaven. So maybe you don't have to keep mitzvahs on the plane. I'm kidding. That's not true. Um, no, but what, what does it mean that we want to bring godliness like, down? Or, or prayer means to ascend up to Hashem? Like, what, what does this up and down language mean? Making it more easy to conceptualize for us, or possible. Making it more what? Easy to conceptualize. If that's up or that's down? If it's coming down, if we can start to conceptualize. Good, good. So one notion of down is something that is more tangible, more concrete, right? Easier to make sense of, easier to relate to. And something that is up is? Easier for Hashem to relate to. Well, let's just keep the, 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 the dynamic the same, which would be harder to relate to, okay? So which is, so, so um, okay, we're going to do a little experiment, okay? Okay.
Okay. I would is like you to read that and just think about if that is, it is that easy for you to understand. One? What? Is it one and only one? Yes. One, one? Yeah. Sure. One and only one. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, read that sentence and tell me if you find that sentence easy to parse what it means. Yeah, get it? Uh -huh. A little bit. Okay, a little bit? I mean, like it's confusing, but it makes sense. Okay. You can understand if you put uh, some yeah. time in, right? Now, if I said that every person has a mother and a father, but every person doesn't need a unique mother and father, right? Two people could have the same mother, or two people could have the same father, right? That, that took you a lot less time to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Could you put a name to it? I spoke about something concrete rather than yeah, X's really and Y's, concrete. right? Yeah. Right. So this would be higher, and the mother father would be lower. Right? Yeah. See what I'm I was actually going to Okay. And in fact, this whole thing would be lower than the abstract notion of higher or lower that you said, right? Because what you just said is easier to understand, more concrete, right? And I actually made that what you said more concrete, right? So this notion that something has a more pure, ideal, ethereal level of its being is the up, and something that is more tangible, easier to grasp, more impactful, that's the down. Good? Yes. So, for instance, the idea of bringing Hashem down means to make godliness more tangible, right? So, why is prayer called going up? Right, you're supposed to relate to things that are less tangible, right? Prayer is supposed to affect that now things that are less tangible, less concrete, are more real to you. So, you've gone up. Whereas, mitzvahs is about making godliness down. bring down, okay? What's higher? Intellect or emotions? Intellect is higher. Why? Because it's lost. It's like up there. I think the emotions, like freedom and dotting, that feel emotions to help you get to a higher intellect. But, but I'm asking of the two. Just wanted to, of those two psychological phenomena, which one is higher and which one is lower? Keeping the same definition of higher and lower. Emotion. What? Intellect is the correct answer. Why? I mean, it, that's nice that Hashem physically represented it that way, but, you know. It's much easier to control your emotions. It's much easier so to contract your emotion. Actually, it's, I don't know that it's easier to control your intellect than your emotions. I think it's much harder to control your intellect than your emotions. These emotions that come from, like, chemical reactions and hormonal things in your body. Well, I mean, yeah, but you could also say intellect has a neurological component as well. That doesn't get you very far. That doesn't get... It's a very simple thing. What does it feel like to feel things? It feels like something, right? What does it feel like to know things? It really doesn't feel like anything. Like, um, I don't know, let's pick something. You took chemistry? Yeah. Yes? No? You studied some chemistry? Yeah, some very basic chemistry you probably know? Okay. Does that feel like anything now that you know it? It doesn't feel like anything. Right? As opposed to emotions that aren't felt aren't really emotions. Like emotions, they're, they're tangible. You actually feel them, right? Which is, by the way, emotions might often be more important in how we live our lives because 
what we tend to do and how we experience ourselves and how others experience ourselves is much more to do with our emotions than what's going on in our intellect. But on the other hand, you know, intellect also is, because intellect deals with things that are abstract and they're not limited to what's going on right here and right now. It's not even limited to me. So in a sense of what's more ethereal, harder to grasp hold of, harder to feel, harder to sense, that's true about intellect. Which is why I say little children. At what point do little children start becoming emotional? From the moment they're born. That's right. What point do they start becoming intellectual? That's a slower process, right? Like, at what point can you, like, actually have a conversation with another human being? At what, like, stage human development? And talk about ideas. Unless you're talking about my oldest son, it's probably somewhere teenage years. Like, like generally speaking, most people before they're teenagers, like, ideas aren't real to them. They don't, they can't talk about an idea. They could talk about things that happen. Things that they feel. Things that, even, even, yeah. Feeling, the ultra she's later on in Tanya, is that if you had to make a dividing line between intellect, emotion, and your physical existence, right? You would make the dividing line between intellect and emotion because emotion is so wrapped up in the physiology. You experience your blood pressures, everything, right? Whatever changes are happening in your, in your physical body by knowing is so, so, you don't experience it. So, and this is why, for instance, just because you know something doesn't mean you live it. Right? But if you feel something, you have to use a tremendous amount of self-control not to act how you feel. So it's much more tangible. Now, notice I'm not talking about importance, which I think might have been what you were trying to get at, what's more important. Because <coughs> that could, as most things in life, there isn't a strict hierarchy of importance. Because usually if you take one away, the other one is not nearly as effective. Like, who's the more important parent, the father or the mother? They're both important, right? And they're, not, and they're both important in different ways. Like, there's a way in which fathers tend to be more important than mothers. No, no, I'm talking about like parenting. How do children learn the limits of um, what is considered safe behavior? They learn that much more, tend to be usually from fathers than mothers. Do you know why? Fathers do something that most mothers don't do. No, no, that's not. They learn about safe behavior. Be scary. What? Be scary. Fathers will be. Fathers will 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 be aggressive with their children. They'll play aggressively. And so the father is is giving them a sense of yeah, you can be aggressive, but up till this point, and that's experience. The father doesn't say it, right? Right. So fathers will like like will pick up the little kid and throw them up in the air and like. You know, like, and it's like, you see this, like, when was the last time you saw, like, a mother come home, take the two-year-old and go, <laughs> just, right? It's weird, right? You wouldn't do that. But the thing is, a kid who goes through that kind of stuff, they learn, like, a certain amount of aggression, a certain amount of conflict has a safety to it, has respect to it, and there's lines you can't cross. And they pick up on that. Now, there's certain things that mothers are much better with children for. Again, this is all statistically, right? You can always find the exception. That's not the point I'm getting into. Um, okay. Um, what? Right? You've never seen. You've never seen any. But any. I hate when they do that. I'm glad, like it's a universal man thing. It is, but, but. Like, um, but baby. But they. But they. But the child learns that like like life can can have can 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 go to places that are that are risky and unsafe and still fundamentally things can be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Again, but then there's this other thing, like, you know, 
there's there's other stuff in there that, 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 that mothers are much tend to be much better about, right? And you can go on and on about everything, right? Seeing and hearing, right? You know, um, listening in class versus taking notes in class, right? And you could, any two things you can find in ways in which one is better than the other. And so the idea would be somehow figure out how to have the best of everything, take a little bit of everything, and sign it make it work all together, right? So Hasidus almost never really cares about like which is better. It'll say which way this is better than that, and then that's better than this. But, but higher and lower, that's actually a very important thing because using this idea is that there's something that is more unattainable. It is more elite in its accessibility. That's higher. And there's something that is more tangible, more available, and that's something that is lower. Right? So if you want to get the purity of something, you want to go in which direction? Up or down? Uh-huh. Up. If you want to be able to utilize something, to apply it, you want to go? Yeah. Down. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So now, give me something about Hashem's backside. Like an example? Yeah, an example of something. Something about Hashem that is not uniquely true to his essence, right? It's not his authentic self. Like providing water. Okay, Hashem provides. Let's be more, more general. Provides, right? Hashem is a provider, right? He has a. He has this. Oh, okay. I mean, are you, are you also can provide stuff, right? And you're not God. No, but you can't provide water. Sure you can. You can give me a cup of water. Yeah, but I can't make the water. We discussed this yesterday, that if you go into the idea of creation, you can think about it two ways. If you think about it having the end result, you can do it. You're just not as good at it. And if you think about the act of creating out of nothing as an, as an, as an essential power, then there's also something that's told you. You don't really understand what that means. The more you reflect on what it means to make something out of nothing, the more you realize that you're just playing a word game which is why those ancient people who also loved coherent philosophy, the Greeks, what did they think of the idea of creating something out of nothing? They thought that was stupid. You know, the, one of the oldest ideas in Greek philosophy is? I don't know, what it, I don't remember the original Greek, but I read it once, but I don't remember. The oldest idea, one of the, it's maybe the oldest recorded idea in Greek philosophy is, out of nothing comes nothing. What is the first verse in the Chumash? In the beginning, Hashem created. And what does Ramban say? What does the word create mean? Something from nothing. You can see why we and the Greeks didn't get along so well. Right? All Greek philosophy really starts with, well, since if you start with nothing, you end up with nothing, then we have to like, understand everything that is in terms of things that were. And so you don't really understand what it means to create something out of nothing. It's just words. Okay. Um, so, provide. Okay. So, I mean, let's think about this. A teacher provides, right? Mm-hmm. And a cow provides. Which is higher, which is lower? Teacher. Now, w- w- why is the teacher providing higher? Because they're providing intellect versus the cow that's providing something that we can like, consume and feel in our Right, right. So we can, there's, there's, I'm going to do this on a few levels. The first level is very simple, is that the thing being provided by the teacher is less tangible, right? The thing provided by the cow is more tangible, right? We can go a little bit deeper. We can say also like this. Which parts, in terms of what's provided, but let's talk about what it means to be provided for. In other words, when you get, say, milk from a cow, what are you getting? I don't mean the milk. Okay, you have milk. So what does it mean to have milk? What does that do to you? 
It keeps your which it affects it which part, right? It affects you on a very tangible level. Does it really? Does it really have any direct influence on the more loftier parts of yourself? No, no right? In other words, drinking milk doesn't make you a more authentic human being, does it? Right. On the other hand, what what you're getting from a teacher is not just that that it in of itself is on a higher level. It affects you on a higher level, right? Right. And what's the point of what? What's the point of learning poetry? What do you get from learning poetry? There's a joke about philosophy majors. You know, what is a philosophy major's first words out of after graduation? Do you want fries with that? What does studying philosophy get you? Like, I mean, I guess you could be good at it and get paid to teach other people philosophy, right? But like, it's not very tangible. But then the idea is like, no, but you're missing the point. Like, it, it's supposed to like make you a better person and touch some deep thing in you, and blah blah blah. And and in some sense, it's actually true, right? But like a cow producing milk, that's like tangible benefit. So it's not just the thing being provided is lower. What it means to provide it is on a lower level. Like all things being equal as a human being, what would you rather have, a teacher or a cow? A teacher. A cow, because otherwise you can't like receive the teacher. Okay. But now if your choice is you get only one for the rest of eternity. So either you can have a cow providing you with what food to eat, but you will never have anybody teach you anything ever. You'd live like oh. a week if you only had a teacher. That's right. So now there's a question about quantity of life versus quality of life. No, this is what I'm getting at. Is that, by the way, not a, I'm not meaning you're supposed to decide the answer, but I want you to see this. Like, no, it's, would you rather live a temper, short, much shorter life, but that has some deep substance to it? Or would you rather live a very long time, but basically exist on the level of an animal? And you know what? We go back and forth on that issue all the time. Okay. But now we can go one step deeper. What is the cow doing in order to provide with milk? It's doing a very lowly thing, right? What is the teacher doing in order to teach? What, what part of the cow is engaged in giving the person milk? Just the basic biology, right? What part of the person is engaged in teaching? What? Their intellect. Their intellect, but more than their intellect. Their intellect and their values. Right? Because if you don't value what you're teaching and you don't value who you're teaching, then you're not really going to provide education. So value and intellect are what goes into that. Very lofty things, right? Very intangible things, right? Okay. So now, would you say that a cow is a provider? Sure, cows are provider. Is a teacher provider? Sure. But uh, which one's on a higher level? The teacher. The teacher. Okay. So now, is God a provider? Yeah. Okay. Is God, so I have, I have a scale, okay? I made my providing scale. Here's my providing scale. It's like a thermometer, right? A thermometer in, in Celsius, you have 100 and zero. What's zero? The temperature of the water freezes, and what's 100? For our purposes, we're not measuring temperatures, so I'm not going to put zero and 100. I'm going to put cow and teacher. Right? So you could be on it. So every provider is either lower than a cow, or higher than a cow, lower than a teacher, or higher than a teacher, right? You can. Okay. So what would you say is something that's like lower than a teacher, higher than a cow? You think provider is lower than teacher but higher than a cow? 
something provides the provider, she's a provider, hires them to what? A doctor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really about your body and physicality, kind of like the cow. But I mean, the doctor, what it goes into providing you with healthcare is much more involved in higher parts of the person, right? So you put doctor over here, right? There's more higher elements in doctor. Good? Okay, where would we put a shot? Yeah. Really, really high, right? Okay. Infinitely above. Push them on him, or do you have to push them's backside? Well, this is Shem's backside, because we're talking about him being a provider, right? So cows, they're pretty lowly providers. They're lowly in what they provide, they're lowly in what it means to provide it, and they're lowly in how they provide, right? Doctors a little higher, teachers a little higher, right? And we can put higher stuff up, like say, like, I don't know, profits, maybe go up here, right? What about Hashem? Hashem's the loftiest, the infinite, best, ultimate provider. Okay, but if he's the loftiest provider, um, what does that mean about his providing? How useful is it? Not useful. Not very useful. Right? It's like if you need a glass of milk, a teacher is not that useful because it's not so tangible. By the way, we have a story of this from the, from the Chumash. Yeah? The Jewish people that came to Moshe, who, by the way, was the provider, right? part of why he's called the shepherd. Shepherds was provide for the sheep, right? And they complained. You know what they didn't have? No. That's a different story. They didn't have meat. They wanted meat. They had water. They had the worst they have nourishment, the worst but they didn't have meat. Now, what's the problem? Meat. Why do you need meat? Well, because meat, in terms of food, is pretty lowly. Why is meat pretty lowly? Well, I think about it, right? The, the actual, you know, in terms of just being nourished, right, you could just, like, have an IV or, like, you know, if you eat plants, right, you can get nourished. Like, there's a lot of, like, meat is very much about the visceral experience of eating as, like, a thing in and of itself. Um... The Gemara has a very like nuanced view of eating meat, which is that eating meat is an important thing to do in the service of God, but if it's not being in the service of God, it's a very debased thing to do. Not because of animal rights, just because of it's a lowly thing to like just sink your teeth into the flesh of another thing. It's like, why would you do that? Anyway, but they wanted meat. So they came to Moshe, because Moshe is supposed to provide them with everything. I mean, he gave them the Torah, right? He gives them the Torah, does miracles, right? Shows them how to live, inspires them with faith. I mean, they come and say, we need meat. What's Moshe's response? No, he's not very happy with that. No, but what's his response? What's that his response? What? He says something about where do you think I'm going to get meat? He's my only bosser. Where do I have meat from? Like, now, which is a weird thing, right? This is the guy who's supposed to see. Right? Uh, so, Chassidus says, uh, it's actually not originally, I think it's not originally from Chassidus, but Chassidus says, because... Why does person say to, like, take your mud and, like, try to... No, he's like, he's like, like, what, 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 like how am I supposed to give you meat? Where am I supposed to get meat from? I mean, what are you supposed to get meat from? Your motion! Right? And so the idea is, yeah, but Moshe is a very lofty provider. And because he's a lofty provider, you want, you, want, you, want, you want a sense of faith in Hashem? Come to me. You even want nourish, physical nourishment? I can provide you with that, right? Mon. Even water, miraculous water. But water, I can get that down, far down, right? Right? You want, you want flesh from animals to sink? Like, I, I, that's, such a low, that's such a low, debased form of... I, I'm so far beyond... How am I supposed to provide that?
Let me give you an, let me give you an, an, an example of this idea that's in a much more subtle way, okay? One of the things that you have, you have two kinds of educators. There's educators who deal with people who, who are being educated who are, I want to use a word that's not too derogatory. Um, they're young, let's use that word. They're young. And, and, and one of the things about someone who's young is that they're not really self-sufficient. And one of the key elements of not being self-sufficient is that they're not personally, they, 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 they don't have the self-confidence to put the effort in through adversity. So a small child, right, when the homework is hard, what happens? Well, if it's hard, I can't do it, right? Um, and if it's repeatedly hard, well, I can't do it, and therefore I'm stupid, right? And this is just like how little children think, right? And so the educator, whether it's the teacher, the tutor, the parent, a large part of what they're doing is they need to be providing this, you could call it emotional support, right, to get them through the process, right? to give them that backing, that sense you can do it, it can, right? Okay. Now, there's a problem with that, which is that if you're spending a lot of time in your, your educating, educational influence trying to make sure that the person feels, the person you're educating feels validated, feels capable, what is that coming on the expense of? Your own self-confidence? No. You lose self-confidence. What, what you're trying to teach. You have to be careful how you say things. You have to be careful about the expectations you make, right? And the, the, the purity of the subject is compromised in order to make it, make it that that person can, can, can both have these other influence, these other inputs in order to get there, right? Which is, I mean, how we educate young people, right? And young, but the thing is, as I would often say, you know, age is not based, based on what's written in your passport. So there are people who are 30, 40, 50 years old and they're still young, right? And if you start talking about something that's too hard for them, you just spend a lot of time encouraging them and telling them why it is relevant for them and why this is important for them. Like, and that all comes at the expense of like, the absolute truth of, and significance of what the subject matter is. Now you can have an older person, again, old is not saying age, who's, who's, they for themselves have a value for the truth. They themselves are driven. They themselves are, as the Talmud says, the Mishnah says, they don't get, because they don't understand it's not a source of personal embarrassment. They'll be open and honest with their ignorance. Right? They want to hear the rebuke. They want to be rebuked. They want to be told when they're wrong, because that's the only way to learn. And such a person, all of the, all of the, all of the, all of the education is geared just towards raising that person's level, right? And there's not, not, none of this um, coddling, if you want to use a very negative word. Okay, now, I'm sure we all know that some, some educators are really good at one kind and not so good at the other kind, right? So what happens if you have the kind of educator who's really good about giving over the truth and the person comes and says, they, I mean, they rarely say it so explicitly, but I need emotional support. I need my hand held. I need to be told that you're not demanding too much of me. I need to be told that even if I don't yeah, understand I it, it. He's like, what do you want from me? I'm trying to teach you something here. And you're like, give me a like, right? It's not gonna work. So Mo, what kind of person was Moshe? You know, when Moshe died, um, the people did not mourn for him like they mourned for Aaron. You know why? Because he, was, he wasn't the emotional support teacher. He was a man of truth. <laughs> if you weren't interested in the truth, he had no time for you. <laughs> Moshe was hard. 
So they come and they want meat. <laughs> what are you, what am I supposed to give you meat? I said, you want, you, want me to, you want me to give you like an ego massage? I'm trying to talk to you about the truth of why God created the world, our purpose in existence. You want a little ego massage? Like, you, you need to feel good about yourself? Get over it. And Shep said, no, 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 they need their meat. You appoint some elders. You'll influence the elders. The elders will, you know. Sometimes that teacher teaches someone else, and that someone else has to teach the younger person. Right? So that things have to go down levels, right? If your Hashem is your direct provider, what kind of things are you have to be looking for to get? Very lofty things. Not physical existence. Not an ego boost. Even if we talk about something which is Hashem's backside, like provider, if you're going to receive directly from Hashem, you're going to receive what Hashem provides. Hashem provides ultimate purpose. Hashem provides ultimate truth. I mean, is that really what you need in life? Right? That doesn't get you to putting on shoes, right? So this notion of providing has to go down many layers, many, many levels, many degrees before we can talk about things like providing money and providing food and providing safety and providing shoes and providing, you know. This is very low levels of providing. Providing as it starts off with Hashem is, is, is useless for anybody other than somebody who's directly interested in Hashem. Even the backside is not good enough. So there's the backside and there's lowering it. And then we have another thing, which is the contractions, right? So we did the, we did the lowering. Okay. If you want Hashem to directly provide you with something, what are you going to get? What an example of something that's directly provided by Hashem? Rain. What? No. Anyone know what's directly? No. Yeah, the Torah, as it was given to who? Us. No. Moshe. Moshe, yeah. That's an example of Hashem direct, pro, directly providing something. Like, would you say like Adam is directly provided? No, no. Would you say There's provided? layers and layers of reality before our physical reality, right? So just because I don't know about him, it's like when you, when you use your smartphone, right? There's a bunch of stuff between you and the website. You just aren't aware of it, right? But, right? So, yeah, even a, even, even a prophet, yeah? A prophet is not being direct, other than Moshe, is not being directly provided to by Hashem. Yeah, but I'm saying even that up to a point, unless it's lowered to a lower level, if you're talking about anything, if you talk about Hashem's kindness, if you're talking about Hashem's providing, if you're talking about Hashem's justice, whatever it is, it's his backside. It's not his ass, it's not his holiness. But even if you're getting just that, you have the, getting that on his level means you're getting that on his level. But the only ones that are interested in that are ones that are actually interested in Him. Only holy beings want to be directly provided to by Hashem. Only holy beings want to see Hashem's, Hashem's justice as it truly is. The rest of us want to see those things as they are, brought down on lower, more relatable levels. Give me food. Give me money. Give me a feeling of validity and purpose. You know, give me social significance. Give me health. Right? On the level of yeah, but that's a lowering of holiness. Oh. Right. So what you're noticing here is that lowering is actually not unique to the sitrach. Lowering occurs also inside of holiness. But the difference between lowering holiness and lowering other things is that when you're lowering holiness, it always stays. Holy. Whereas if you're lowering other things, it's like a game of telephone, eventually it can become very different. Yeah. Isn't the Torah kind of lowered? Otherwise it is lowered. Down. That's what she just asked. It's lowered, but the holiness doesn't change. When you lower, the thing about holiness is that when you lower holiness, it always stays holy. 
But if you lower something else, it, what it is in a, on a different level is we can become radically different. Do you have an example? Yes. Teaching math to kindergartners. So I love this example. When you teach math to kindergartners, you say, so if I have three lollipops and I eat one lollipop, how many lollipops do I have left, right? And the kindergartner raises your hand and says, yes. He says, what flavor were the lollipops? Now that never happens in a multivariable calculus class. Do you know why? Because when you're dealing with multivariable calculus, it's very clear you're dealing with abstract mathematics, right? But when you bring it down to the level of a three-year-old, right? As a distant level of a three-year-old, it's not, it exists as something that is not just mathematical. And so therefore, unless someone is genuinely interested in the mathematics per se, they can miss it. So like for instance, the fact that a Shem is a provider on the level where I need money, it's not so much that I care about Hashem being a provider, just I need money, he happens to be good at providing it. So I kind of miss the point. As things go down into a lower level, that the underlying essence of the matter can get distorted. Holiness, because holiness is something that is transcendent, it's something that, that doesn't really, what makes it be what it is, that it isn't anything you could put your finger on, though that, the holiness of it doesn't change. So if you ask like, what about Shabbos candles is holy? And the answer is, well, I can't tell you what's holy, because the things that I can tell you about it are, not holy. The holiness is the, the indescribable part. So the indescribable part remains indescribable. So the lowering of holiness and the lowering of anything else are going to be radically different. So a multivariable calculus be somewhat holy since it's holier than... No, higher. Don't confuse higher and holy. Okay. Multivariable class is higher. It's more abstract. It's more theoretical. It's a pure form of mathematics and what happens in kindergarten. But it's not holy. Because holy means it's surrendered to Hashem and the holiness of Hashem resides within it, which is not true about multivariable calculus. Multivariable calculus is not holy. It contaminates your mind, by the way. Altarbis says that later on in chapter 8. Okay. So we did lowering. Are you ready for contractions? Okay. Wrong color. It's messing with my sense of Symmetry, whatever. Okay. What are contractions? So, when I think of my head of contractions, I think of like taking something big and like shrinking it. Like not lowering, like making it small, limiting. Well, I mean, that's, a, 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 yeah, it's a, it, 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 limiting, right? So let me give you an example. Of, let me give you an example of this idea, right? Um, it's important. One of the things that one of the things that you know Chabad really believes in is like teaching people Torah, sharing Judaism, right? Okay. Um, and I'll say things in class which are kind of like um, what's the word? Um, maybe controversial sometimes, right? Now, do you think you see somebody? They're not religiously observant. They don't know very much about Torah mitzvahs. Do you think it would make a lot of sense to go over to that person and to say, you should feel sad that we don't have bird sacrifices where the Kohen gets to crush the bird's neck in the back with it. Do like, you really think that's the first thing you should tell them? No. Why not? They will look at you all strange and walk off. Right. Okay. What if you tell them, you know, if you light a match on Shabbos, once Mashiach comes, they're going to stone you to death. How about that? No. So what do you engage in when you're talking to somebody who doesn't know very much? Something they can relate to. Something come to relate to, right? And you, all the stuff that you don't think that they could relate to, what do you do? Yeah. Right. It's called self-censorship, right? right? 
You're limiting, you're like, hey, you're holding stuff back. Like, I don't know if you guys should really tell you that, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, some people really like it when someone censors themselves because then you don't have to face anything uncomfortable, right? Some people don't like it. But some people don't like it because it seems a little disingenuous, doesn't it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Of those two th- sides, which side do you think I'm more on the teaching side? <laughs> more, let's be more genuine and less self-censorship. But even still, I also engage in self-censorship. Yeah. Okay. Everybody engages in self-censorship. You have to, right? Okay, so here's the thing. This notion of contractions is like that idea of self-censorship. If Hashem is going to give something to the klipa, he kind of has to leave certain things out about it. For instance, providing. Let me give you, go back to providing. Yeah, There are some people that they've learned a lot and they feel really proud of themselves. And really, really like they know a lot. And the more they learn, the more they feel that they're they, they're gaining in significance and importance in their own eyes. So what, what is being hidden from them? Maybe willingly, maybe unwillingly, what, however it happens, what's being hidden from them is the fact that, well, everything you know, you didn't start off knowing. How do you know it? Someone told you. Someone told you or it's a phenomenon in the world that's true in the world. But, but the stuff that you know, right, existed outside of you beforehand, right? So the very fact that you know stuff is actually just kind of proof of your inherent ignorance, number one. Number two, the fact that you can keep knowing stuff really means, right? Means that you should be aware, like, this is true. You see certain people when they learn a subject, right? They start to become humbler and humbler because they start to realize that every little one thing they know exposes them to how many other things they've yet to know, right? Mm-hmm. Right? And then you go into the matter that's been put in fact that there's the time and effort that other people have to put into you knowing this stuff, right? If you take all, so if you take the totality of the reality of you knowing a lot of stuff, that would make you feel very big or very small as a person. Very small. How come many, many people feel very big by knowing things? Because this phenomenon is being censored from them, and the only part that's getting through to them is the fact that I possess knowledge. And really what does that entail and what does that mean is not being let into their mind, whether someone's hiding it from them or their mind is blocking it out. I don't get into that, but there's some kind of censorship happening. If the whole story of what it means for a human being to know stuff came through clearly into your mind, the more you know, the humbler you would be, the smaller you would feel. And the opposite happens for most people. Okay? Um, there was a line that Barack Obama said, which I thought was a really great line. I'm not getting, whenever I bring up politics, it's always an analogy, and I never tell you guys what my politics are. So don't infer or think in. But I think that this line is a very good line, and the fact that it exposes a very deep truth. So there's a whole thing about um, politics in the United States, and he said um, about people that have this argument, well, it's my business, I built this business. And uh, he said in one of his speeches, you didn't build that. And if you think about it, okay, you have a business, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's take away the roads, because you didn't build the roads. Do you have a business? Mm-hmm. Take away the electricity. Mm-hmm. Take away the security that the state provides, so that, generally speaking, you're free of violence, right? Because you know, businesses don't thrive in places where there's a lot of anarchy and violence, mm-hmm. right? Um, other people have exp- um, um, disposable income. Did you provide them with their disposable income? I mean, unless you're Henry Ford, who's like paying your workers enough to make the disposable income, you buy your own cars. But generally speaking, that's not what's happening, right? So you just go on and on, like start stripping out all the parts about your business that make your business an actual financial viable reality that are not of your own doing. And um, 
it turns out that the overwhelming majority of the inputs into the successful business are not the owners. Now, does that mean the owner didn't do anything? It doesn't mean the owner didn't do anything. I'm not getting into the politics of therefore what. But like, that is an important thing. Like, if you have a successful business, you should be incredibly humble and grateful to society, right? And yet, most people who are really successful business owners, the opposite is true. So somehow, the reality of things is being held back from them. Same idea. Okay, so if Hashem is the provider, Hashem is the sustainer, Hashem is the source of justice. Hashem, Hashem, is, Hashem is the really the one doing it all. Then, therefore, the recipe, recipient of any of those things should feel incredibly grateful, right? Incredibly humble, right? Incredibly small in, in their own eyes. Is that the attitude of Sitra Achra? Or Sitra Achra makes the priority about something other than Hashem. It's like, you know, people like it's like people people pray when something's going wrong in their life. Well, that means the main thing in my life is myself and my convenience. And if something's going wrong, okay, now, with no choice, I'll turn to acknowledge the fact that God might have some involvement. So, like, something about this dynamic is not, like, registering. It's being held back. There's a contraction. If, if that doesn't happen, then you don't get sitrachra. Like, something, the, the, the order of priority has to somehow not come through. Okay? So it's not just lowering of levels. Hashem has to kind of actively hold back from the sitrachra the fact that, um, excuse me, like, I think we have the, the, the hierarchy wrong, right? Everything that you have is of my doing, so like, the relationship should be so you should feel entitled to nothing and be grateful for everything. But that's not really how sitrachra tends to feel. So you need that as well. So, what is, what is Hashem's relationship with the Sitrachra so far? It's something like this, yeah? Let's say I'm really into my family. Like, that's really what I'm all about, right? Okay? But I have a job. So, my job, like, I, let's say, I mean, not me, because I teach and I'm really into teaching, but let's say my job is that I'm a middle manager and I do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> So like, I happen to be quite qualified at doing paperwork, right? So my job is getting my front side or my back side? My back side, right? But it happens to me, I'm a brilliant administrator, but my job is a mid-level manager. So therefore, I'm dumbing down my level of administrative ability, right? To what the position requires and not to make my boss nervous, right? Yeah? On top of that, right? On top of that, It's really easy for me. It's like super easy for me, let's say. But if I let it off that it's super easy for me, how's that going to affect like my work, right? Have you ever had a job where like there's somebody it's like really, really easy for them? It takes almost no effort. How does everyone else at the work feel? They don't really like them so much, right? And there's backstabbing. And it's just, you know what? So I'm gonna like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not, I'm gonna self-censor. I'm gonna not let it off like how easy it is for me. I'm not gonna let, off, let it off that I don't really think that the company does anything really important. Like, I don't get any of that stuff come through because like, this can really jeopardize my place in the company. Right? Is the company getting something from me? Sure, they're getting something from me. What they're getting from me is like nothing remotely like me anymore, right? So that's Hashem and the Sidrachar. 
it's a backside, it's lowering, there's, there's these contractions, this concealment. Like it's, it's, yes, it's getting something of Hashem, but it, what it's getting of Hashem is nothing like Hashem anymore. Okay? And the last thing is that it's clothed in exile. Okay. What is exile? What does it mean to be in a state of exile? No. That's not what exile is. That's just not a good place. To be unable to access your homeland? Okay. So, so here, here's the thing, right? One of the, we, we, we break Jewish history up into a bunch of different exiles. So you have the, I mean, the Egyptian exile, but that's the, that's the main thing. But after that, you have the Babylonian exile, the Persian exile, the Greek exile, and the Roman exile, which we're still in. Um, the Greek exile, we had a temple. The Greek exile, Jews lived in Israel. Being under someone else. Right, that, right. The idea is, the idea is, the idea is that there's a place you can't go. It's not a geographic location. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not the issue. It's like, it's like, if you take a trip at sea and you get shipwrecked, you're not in exile. I mean, that's not a good thing. That's not an exile. An exile is that you're sent away from where you belong and now you're enmeshed and immersed in something that really isn't fitting for you. Okay? So you could be in exile. Um, so in other words, exile is more of a state of being, right? An ambassador who travels to a foreign country is not in exile, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but someone who's living in their native land that's being occupied is in a state of exile. Right? In other words, that you're somehow beholden and constrained by something that has nothing to do with you. And that, on a deeper level, violates something true about yourself. Okay? So now, in other words, exile is you're playing by somebody else's rules at the expense of yourself. That's what it means to be in exile. Now, obviously, if you have people come around like Babylonians and drag a bunch of Jews off to Babylonia, they're in exile, right? That's obvious, right? But, but exile is many, many forms. So, so godliness is all about revealing Hashem, right? Godly energy is all about revealing the truth of Hashem. The godly energy that's in this, in this Sitra Achra is in a state of exile. Why? Because as long as it's part of the Sitra Achra, it's going to have to function according to whose rules? The Sitra Achra's rules. Otherwise, it's not, right? right? So there's this added level where you kind of, you, 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 you're subject to an authority that doesn't, that doesn't validate you, that, doesn't, that, that goes against you, that violates you. What does it mean that our godly soul is in exile? Because who, 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 who makes, as most people, when we live our life, yeah? Who's the one that calls the shots? The godly soul or the animal soul? The animal soul. When we're doing mitzvahs, do you know that for most of us, when we do a mitzvah, it's because our animal soul gave our godly soul permission to do a mitzvah. It's like, yeah, I don't mind that mitzvah. That's a cool mitzvah. I enjoy that mitzvah. You could do it. That, that's really what's happening. Like, like, why is it that certain mitzvahs you're fine with, certain mitzvahs you're not fine with? It's not because sometimes the godly soul overpowered the animal soul. That's not really what's happening. Because if it's really the godly soul overpowering the animal soul, the differences in mitzvahs aren't going to show up. All mitzvahs are holy. Why is it that like learning I'm into and I don't know, cleaning for Pesach I'm not or whatever it is, it's because like my animal soul likes certain things and so like other things. And so it's like, you know, so you know that mitzvah is what I'm okay with. Right? It's like, the, you know, it's like we're in exile. In the United States of America, Orthodox Jews are in exile, right? So which, which, which mitzvahs is the United States government okay with? Their mitzvahs they're okay with. Are they okay with davening? Yeah, so we could daven. 
Are they okay with bris milah? Baruch Hashem is still okay with bris milah, right? Now in the modern world, that's becoming an issue, right? What's the mitzvahs that they're not okay with? They don't give me stuff that only exists in times of the temple. Stuff, the mitzvahs that the United States government is not okay with. Anyone know any mitzvahs? What? The chickens? Well, usually actually the government is okay with that. You just need the proper permits. No. What? No, no there are. Really? There are. Um, we have a mitzvah to... Burying bodies. No, they're okay with that. But we have to be used Okay, fine. But like an actual mitzvah, the whole package deal. We have a mitzvah. We have a mitzvah that we are supposed to have rabbinic authorities that govern our communities. That have full enforcement power. In other words, we're supposed to have our own legal system. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what, you know, what, what, you know <laughs> if, if, if the Basin decides to impose against your agreement, right, um, monetary confiscation, right, or physical punishment, which you do not need a Sanhedrin for nowadays, right? You, you can do that. And, and, you think the United States government's gonna say, oh, okay, that's fine, religious practice. They're gonna no, you're going to prison for like, whatever felony that is, right? Assault or, or, or theft or whatever, yeah? You know, way back before the Enlightenment, and Jewish, the, the Jewish communities had that. Like in, in medieval Europe, the, 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 the idea that the, the, the rabbinic establishment had was, was a legal authority over their communities was recognized. In medieval Europe was recognized in the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian Empire, and, and the Roman Empire. And so, yeah, like, you know, if the, if the rabbis want to put someone in prison or put someone in the stocks, or then they have the authority to do that. They're within their community, right? They have jurisdiction. But, like, the idea that rabbis have jurisdiction, which is actually a mitzvah in the Torah. There's like several mitzvahs in the Torah. It's like, the government, the, the United States government's like, not okay with that now. So what do all the Jews in, 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 in uh, the United States do? Like, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever you say. So, like, right, we don't, like, we'll find legal loopholes within the American legal system to have based on, like, like, we'll just, there's, there's this compromising effect. I'm not saying that we should all just, like, establish based on against the government, right? Because you have to pick and choose your battles sometimes. But that's an example of exile. If we weren't in exile, you couldn't sue another Jew. You're not allowed to, people know, you're not allowed to sue a Jew in secular court. You know that? You're not allowed to go to secular court. So, and, 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 and in a, in a, in a, if you weren't in exile, right, the rabbinic establishment wouldn't let you do it, and if you did it, they would confiscate your property. Like, and not to mention the whole like, issue of women not getting gets. That's a relatively modern thing. It didn't happen 400 years ago in any sort of numbers that happened today. You know why? We're in exile. Now, it's not exile of communist Russia, right? But it's exile. Right? We're not talking about the fact that the general state of the world doesn't allow us to have a temple and stuff. So, so if godliness is trying to bring about something true about Hashem, right? at some point you get to a point where it's just the godly energy in the klipa, in the sitra achra, is willing to, is willing to be the, 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 what do you call that person? The, um, in golf. If the golf player, caddy. the caddy, right? right? At this point, what happened is the godliness has become the caddy of the klipa, right? Just, the klipa is going to exist, it's going to do its thing, and the guy says, yes, whatever you need, I'm here to provide for you. And it's like, that's the, it's, it's not playing by its own rules, it's not doing its own I thing anymore. That's how, this is the thing, is this is how God lives. We say God is everywhere in the world, but what state is he in? 
Exile. With the exception of mitzvahs and the essence of the Jewish soul. What? Yeah. yeah. Which is why the Medrash says that when the Jews went into exile, God was also in exile. But Hashem can do anything. He doesn't have to put himself in that state. That's true. Do you know what we call people that are judgmental about other people's suffering? Well, you could have avoided your suffering, so, so therefore, you ever see somebody like that? Somebody's suffering, you're like, well, you know, you could have avoided this problem, right? And you generally could have. Yeah? You know what we call people like that? That they find someone else in a negative state, in a state of suffering, and they say, well, since they could have avoided it, it's their fault. Yeah? We call them cruel. I don't think you're a cruel person, right? If someone, made, if someone decided to do things that causes them suffering, right? Do you feel compassion for their suffering? Yeah. So without compassion for their suffering?